Attention! This makes absolutely no sense. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Xander's Facts. Hey, hey, y'all, what's going on? Welcome into the latest edition of the Xander's Facts podcast. I am, of course, the aforementioned Xander, and this is episode 68 of the podcast here on Wednesday, June 29th. Thank you all for listening, and remember, if you have liked the Xander's Facts podcast, if you think you're going to like the facts, I got a bunch of facts on episode 68 of the podcast. If you think you're going to like them, then remember to click the follow button on this podcast, download this episode, episode 68, rate the podcast, review the podcast, go on all the socials, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, that's Xander's Facts, Xander with a Z, give all the hearts, subscribe, likes, follow, whatever, and then remember, most importantly, to all your friends, spread the facts, Xander's Facts podcast. And if you don't remember from last week, you got to go to Starbucks, go to any restaurant, say your order name, Xander's Facts. They're going to look at you weird, but it's spreading the facts. I've done it already. So there you go. If you say so. Xander's Facts podcast. This week, we have got two huge things to talk about. Actually, when I was planning this podcast last week, I had two other things that I was going to talk about. And I mentioned last week on the podcast, we were going to talk about wealth inequality, the wealth gap that's going on in our society. Well, we're not going to talk about that this week. Because some other stuff has come up that you might know about. So we're going to get to that in a future podcast. Don't worry, I've got it marked down in my notes that we're going to get to that. But this week, we are going to talk about the January 6th committee. Because on Tuesday, if you don't know, it's a pretty big hearing. An unscheduled surprise hearing that revealed a lot of information, which I'm going to get into in a little bit. But before we do that on episode 68 of the podcast, we are going to talk about the topic that has probably been on the front of your minds for the last couple of days, ever since Friday. You know what I'm talking about? Because what was inevitable became officially reality on Friday as the Supreme Court handed down their decision on Dobbs v. Jackson. The Supreme Court of the United States officially ruled six to three that a women's right to an abortion was not protected in the Constitution, overturning Roe v. Wade after 49 years. So that decision, of course, sparked uproar across the country with pro-choice and women's rights advocates protesting the decision at the Supreme Court in D.C. and beyond over the last few days. And what was inevitable, we say inevitable because... You remember episode 62 of this podcast, which was literally titled A Podcast About Abortion. We talked about this because back in early May, Politico reported out a leaked draft opinion for Dobbs v. Jackson, which showed that the six conservatives on the Supreme Court were prepared to overturn Roe v. Wade. And that is what happened. And I basically covered all the bases on that pod. So you'd kind of need to go listen to that to get the full facts if you haven't. That's episode 62. Like it. Stop the podcast right now if you haven't listened because you need to go listen to that first. And I also posted an emergency Sanders Facts flashback on the podcast feed on Saturday. You may have seen that, which literally includes the abortion portion of that episode. So if you haven't listened to that, You need to go listen to that because it's got a lot of facts. Too many facts. A lot of facts that I'm going to repeat this week, and I'm not because there were a ton of facts there. So you got to go listen to that. But this week, what I'm going to do 
is revisit that topic, of course, revisit some facts, and introduce some new ones. So, without further ado, let's take a look at the final opinion in Dobbs v. Jackson, which is the case that was decided and overturned Roe v. Wade. So, we went in-depth looking at the draft opinion that leaked last month on episode 62, and the final version that was released on Friday is very similar. They are both written by Justice Samuel Alito, one of the six conservatives, and the ruling is in response to the case of Dobbs v. Jackson, when the Jackson Women's Health Organization sued the Mississippi Department of Health and State Health Officer Thomas Dobbs after Mississippi instituted a 15-week abortion ban in 2018. So, in that opinion, and in the draft opinion, basically, Alito writes, quote, It is time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives. The permissibility of abortion and the limitations upon it are to be resolved, like most other important questions in our democracy, by citizens trying to persuade one another and then voting. This is what the Constitution and the rule of law demand, unquote. This and many other items mentioned are exactly or very similar to what was stated in the draft opinion, including the note that Alito makes that at the time of the Mississippi abortion law, when it went into place in 2018, quote, only six countries besides the United States permitted non-therapeutic or elective abortion on demand after the 12th week of gestation, unquote. Well, that is true. However, it is extremely misleading. That's not a fact. As I said on episode 62, because what Alito fails to note is that many countries, including Britain, Denmark, and Germany, offer extremely broad exceptions past 12 weeks. Alito also writes, quote, We hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled. The Constitution makes no reference to abortion, and no such right is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision, including the one on which the defenders of Roe and Casey now chiefly rely, the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. That provision has been held to guarantee some rights that are not mentioned in the Constitution, but any such right must be, quote, deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition, unquote, and, quote, implicit in the concept of ordered liberty, unquote. So, that view that the 14th Amendment only protects the rights not mentioned in the Constitution that are deeply rooted in history is a pretty conservative one. Liberals would tend to interpret that clause and the Constitution as having an evolving meaning over time, which, I mean, the country's evolving, so I'm, just, I'm not going to get into that. But, of course, abortions did occur in the United States when the 14th Amendment was enacted in 1868 and before. We talked about the entire history of abortion in this country back on episode 62. Also to defend his argument, though, Alito tries to enlist the help of the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Alito cites Ginsburg's majority opinion in Tibbs v. Indiana, which was decided in 2019 when the court took up a case that found in a 9-0 vote that the Due Process Clause in the 14th Amendment incorporated the Excessive Fines Clause in the Eighth Amendment because it is, quote, fundamental to our scheme of ordered liberty, unquote, and, quote, deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition, unquote. What do you say? Alito also says that while there are those that argue abortion is protected by the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, Roe and Casey, KCV Planned Parenthood, were not argued with the Equal Protection Clause as a defense, meaning those who evaluate those laws today do not need to consider the clause, which doesn't make much sense because if 
you are overturning the right to an abortion you see that's not constitutionally protected by the due process clause, but maybe the equal protection clause, why wouldn't you look at that? That doesn't make much sense. But Ginsburg historically also had reservations about the Roe decision in 1973, not saying that abortion is protected by the Constitution, but saying it should have been argued as an equal protection right for women and that it came too soon for the country. So Alito does try to use Ginsburg, who did say those things in the past, but you also have to remember that Ginsburg was a steadfast supporter of abortion rights in this country. Fact! And ultimately, not too much changes from the draft opinion. The six conservative justices on the court decided that the right to an abortion was not protected by the due process clause in the Constitution and has returned that decision on the legality of abortion to the states like it was before 1973. Like, remember, there has never been a nationwide abortion ban in this country. Before 1973, the states could just do whatever they want. The only major change from the opinion is now the decision is official and states can implement their own abortion restrictions because the court overruled Roe v. Wade explicitly. So, the response to the ruling has prompted anger, protests, and legislation. Because after Friday's ruling, advocates for abortion rights and women's rights held protests across the country over the weekend. As I said, as you probably know, President Biden also spoke about the ruling after it was handed down on Friday. And here is some of what he said to defend abortion rights and ridicule the court's decision. Today, the Supreme Court of the United States expressly took away a constitutional right from the American people that it had already recognized. They didn't limit it. They simply took it away. That's never been done to a right so important to so many Americans. But they did it. It's a sad day for the court and for the country. Now, with Roe gone, let's be very clear. The health and life of women in this nation are now at risk. As chairman and ranking member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, as vice president and now as president of the United States, I've studied this case carefully. I've overseen more Supreme Court confirmations than anyone today, where this case was always discussed. I believe Roe v. Wade was the correct decision. Make no mistake, this decision is a culmination of a deliberate effort over decades to upset balance of our law. It's a realization of an extreme ideology and a tragic error by the Supreme Court, in my view. The Court has done what it has never done before, expressly take away a constitutional right that is so fundamental to so many Americans that had already been recognized. The court's decision to do so will have real and immediate consequences. State laws banning abortion are automatically taking effect today, jeopardizing the health of millions of women, some without exceptions. So extreme that women could be punished for protecting their health. So extreme that women and girls were forced to bear their rapist child. For the child, a consequence, it's a, 
it just, it just stuns me. So extreme that doctors will be criminalized for fulfilling their duty to care. Imagine having a young woman have to ch carry a child of incest as a consequence of incest. No option. Too often the case, the poor women are going to be hit the hardest. It's cruel. In fact, the court laid out state laws criminalizing abortion that go back to the 1800s <laughs> as rationale. The court literally taking America back 150 years. This is a sad day for the country, in my view. And like Biden, many other Democrats have come out and decried the decision and said they plan to defend abortion rights to the best of their ability, including the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, who called the ruling, quote, an evisceration of Americans' rights, unquote, and, quote, a slap in the face of women, unquote. With the Senate at 50 senators and a bill to codify abortion rights and make them legal nationwide once again, needing 60 votes, you all know this, without the removal of the filibuster, there appears little right now that Pelosi and congressional Democrats can do at the moment. However, Pelosi said that she is preparing legislation that would vote to protect abortion rights nationwide. Of course, the move is basically symbolic because Senators Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema are not going to vote to remove the filibuster in the Senate, even after this, even after all the stuff that we can't pass with the filibuster, they are still, no, we're not going to get rid of it. So basically, that's not going to happen. However, some Democrats have passed laws to protect abortion rights, specifically those in California, because in November, California voters are going to vote on enshrining the right to abortion and contraception in the state constitution. Of course, on the other hand, you've got other states, red states, that have been quick to implement abortion restrictions and outright bans. In many states, trigger laws took effect the moment that Roe was struck down that implement major abortion restrictions. So I kind of did this in episode 62, but I'm going to do it again, breaking down state by state what the laws are. So you've got those states that instituted major abortion restrictions immediately uh -oh. after Roe was struck down. Those are Alabama, Arkansas, Kentucky, Missouri, Oklahoma, Ohio, South Dakota, and Texas, which have immediately implemented abortion restriction laws and bans, like in the case of Texas. While trigger laws in Louisiana and Utah are currently being blocked in the respective state court systems, and Texas is dealing with that as well. Additionally, Idaho, Mississippi, North Dakota, Tennessee, and Wyoming have trigger laws that are going to take effect in the next month. There are seven additional states where abortion bans or major restrictions are likely to pass in the coming weeks and months, and those include Arizona, Florida, Georgia, Indiana, Iowa, South Carolina, and West Virginia. On the other side, there are 20 states where abortion is currently legal and being protected, and those include Alaska, California, Colorado, Connecticut, Delaware, Hawaii, Illinois, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, Minnesota, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New Mexico, New York, Nevada, Oregon, Rhode Island, Vermont, and Washington. And then finally, the remaining states are ones where abortion does remain legal, but its future is uncertain. We've got Kansas, which is holding a statewide referendum in August on a constitutional amendment that would eliminate abortion protections. 
Note how they're not doing it in November. They're doing it in August. Michigan and Wisconsin have pre-Roe abortion bans that were passed before 1973 that the Democratic governors and attorneys general say they will not enforce, and Michigan's has been blocked by the courts. Montana and Nebraska are led by Republicans. The governor is a Republican, and the legislature is controlled by Republicans who may seek to implement restrictions. North Carolina and Pennsylvania have Democratic governors who vetoed abortion restrictions from their Republican legislatures. And in Virginia, oh boy, talk about my guy, Glenjamin, because Glenjamin, Glenny, Yunkin, is proposing a 15-week abortion ban, even though Virginia Democrats currently have a one-vote majority in the state Senate, which would block that. So that's not going to happen until, very least, 2023, when state legislature elections are up. And also, just no. So, since abortion rights are now up to the states, it's important to know the laws where you live. And if you want to go even more in-depth, like what exactly is Texas's law? What exactly is Kentucky's, West Virginia's, whatever? You can go more in-depth in this Sunday's edition of Xander's Weekend Facts because I included a link on there that breaks down the situation in all 50 states. I also wrote something on there, Xander's Analysis about this. So if you haven't read Zayder's Weekend Facts from this past Sunday, you might want to go do that. Good to know. But as I was about to say with Virginia, the majority of Virginians do not support more abortion restrictions. And here is what the American people actually think about abortion, because in his response to the ruling, the minority leader of the Senate, Republican Mr. Turtle Mitch McConnell, said that the Democrats were, quote, extreme on abortion, unquote. Well, if that is true, if the Democrats are extreme on abortion, then it appears that a vast majority of the nation is extreme on abortion as well. Just in the last few days, we have polls that have been released that show majorities of Americans do not support the ruling and do support abortion rights, including the latest NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll, which was released on Monday, that found that 56% of Americans oppose the ruling, only 40% support it. When getting into specifics, the education gap is most stark. 69 nice percent of college graduates do not support the ruling, while only 47% of those who haven't graduated college do not support the ruling. And while 88% of Democrats oppose the ruling, only 20% of Republicans pose, and in independents, 53% of independents oppose. Then, there's another poll that I've got, CBS News YouGov poll, which was released on Sunday, found that 59% of Americans disapprove of the ruling, while 41% approve, with 62% of independents disapproving. 52% said the ruling is a step backward for America, and 56% said it will make women's lives worse. 58% also favor a federal law that would make abortion legal nationwide. And majorities also said that abortion should be legal, with 32% saying it should be legal in all cases, and the same number is saying it should be legal in most cases, which totals 62% who favor legalization in at least most cases. That's a lot of numbers. When Mitch McConnell says that Democrats are extreme on abortion, Apparently, the entire country is extreme on abortion, but most Republicans have celebrated the decision, but not in an over-the-top way 
mostly. Despite what they're saying in public, most celebrating the decision kind of, you know, oh, yay. Worry is building in the Republican caucus privately because the position that Republicans have taken nationwide is not very popular, as I just noted, even in states they control, like Texas. Yes, the Texas that apparently wants to secede from the U.S., as we talked about last week, which... What? Oh boy, if you haven't listened to that, you kind of need to. So, in a University of Texas at Austin poll from May, 78% of Texans believe abortion should be allowed in some form, while only 15% believe it should be outlawed entirely, while Republicans did pass a six-week abortion ban last year in Texas, the trigger law that took effect when Roe was overturned has now banned all abortions from the moment of fertilization with only rare exceptions to save the life of the woman, no exceptions for rape or incest. So, apparently, the law that just went into effect in Texas is only supported by 15% of people who live in Texas, which is not that good for whoever just implemented that law, Republicans. So, most Republicans have not been very loud on this issue because they know that for them, it is now a loser politically because for 50 years, you basically said, we need to get rid of abortion baby killers. That drove all their people to the polls. Now, you can't say that because I, they did it. So, on the other side, Democrats hope this is going to drive turnout for November's midterms. The latest NPR PBS Marist poll that I cited earlier found that 78% of Democrats are more likely to vote because of the decision. Only 54% of Republicans say the same. The CBS News poll found that 50% of Democrats are more likely to vote because of the issue. Only 20% of Republicans said the same. The Democratic numbers are significant. That's what you got to look at right now because that's considering Democrats were worrying about low turnout in the midterms among the Democratic base because of President Biden's low approval ratings. And that NPR poll found that Biden has a 40% approval rating, 53% disapprove, which isn't that great. Pretty bad. So this issue, they hope, is going to drive Democrats out. Ultimately, though, the only thing that Democrats can do right now is drive their voters to the polls by promising a federal law which would legalize abortion. But will other factors, mainly the economy, gas prices and inflation, suppress turnout? That's the worry. Now, let me just tell you. Here we go. If you didn't listen to episode 67 last week, you need to stop the podcast again for the second time because you didn't listen to episode 62. Episode 67 is what you need to listen to because last week we talked about gas prices, inflation, the economy, why it's happening, who you should blame, and spoiler alert, you shouldn't be blaming Biden. Wow, incredible, right? I know. If you actually want to know, go listen to that podcast, but I digress. So that's why the generic congressional polls are important to see who stands a chance in this year's midterms, because the generic congressional polls are going to show where the country's leaning in favor of a political party for the midterms. So the NPR PBS Marist poll found that 48% of Americans are more likely to vote for a Democratic candidate in the midterms. That number for Republicans is 41%. Now, in that same poll, 
When it was asked in April, Republicans led with a 47% to 44% margin. So, for context in all this, because, you know, we're talking about nationwide, but we're not having nationwide elections this year. We're having Senate elections in a couple states, and we're having House elections nationwide, but the districts are all gerrymandered, and it's ridiculous, and the generic congressional ballot, when you know, when that's 0-0, that doesn't mean that Democrats are going to gain zero seats or lose zero seats. It could mean the Democrats gain seats, or it could mean the Republicans gain seats because of gerrymandering. So, for context in this, when Republicans gained 63 seats to take the House in 2010, the big red wave of the midterm 2010, Republicans won the nationwide popular vote by 6.8 points, and the average of generic congressional polls showed Republicans up by 9.4%. But in late of June 2010, the two parties were basically even around 43%. So in 2018, when Democrats won 41 seats and took the House, Democrats won by 8.4%, And in the final generic congressional polls, they held a lead of 7.3%. And then, in late June of 2018, the Democrats held a 6-point lead around there. So, things can definitely change in the next four months or so. But, if the Democrats hold a 7-point lead, I would say that's pretty good for their chances. Especially, 2018, Democrats actually lost seats in the Senate because they were holding on to seats in North Dakota, in Missouri, and Indiana, which are very red states. This time, they're holding on to seats in Georgia, in Arizona, Nevada, New Hampshire are really their big four targets. And they're looking to take seats in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, states that Biden won, and also North Carolina and Florida are there too. So. It's going to be very interesting. And that's the political side of it. But of course, the moral side of this is that this ruling is going to be absolutely devastating for women's rights. It's a fact. But, and this is a bad but actually, the evisceration of rights may not stop here. Ultimately, what this ruling does is deny women a right that they have had for nearly 50 years. Because according to the court, the case was wrongly argued. But that's just the argument they chose, I guess, even though it would be pretty hard to argue that the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment does not protect a women's right to an abortion. I'll read that to you right now. Quote, All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of the law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws, unquote. Of course, that's just what they decided they could have came up with anything. They just said the case was wrongly argued. They were going to get rid of it anyway. Of course, this is just the latest move by the right-wing so-called conservatives in the country to move us away from a democracy and into a Christian state theocracy. Oh, Xander, you're just so silly. You have no clue what you're talking about. Don't believe me. On Monday of this week, the Supreme Court ruled that a school district in Washington state violated a high school football coach's religious freedom 
by saying he couldn't pray on the field after games. Of course, that high school football coach is Christian. Do you think that the same ruling would have been handed down if that coach was Muslim or Jewish or any other religion? I don't think so. I don't think so. Also, since the justices were so strict about what exactly the Constitution said about abortion, what about the separation of church and state? Because the First Amendment states, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, unquote, which has led to what we consider the separation of church and state. Public schools are a part of the state. They are funded by the government. So there's just one hypocrisy. Another hypocrisy that I found is in a Supreme Court ruling from all the way back on Thursday of last week. The court determined that New York State's law that required people provide a legitimate reason for obtaining a gun in order to get a concealed carry permit was unconstitutional because the court ruled that Americans have a right to carry firearms in public for self-defense, citing the Second Amendment, of course. So, the Supreme Court said states should not be allowed to put restrictions on guns, but apparently they can put restrictions on abortions. Now, tell me where in the Second Amendment it says that Americans have a right to carry a gun for self-defense. The Second Amendment, quote, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, unquote. Pretty sure, I'm pretty sure, that needing a reason to obtain a gun could very well be part of that well-regulated portion of the amendment that a lot of conservatives tend to forget about, you know? Huh. So, basically, what I've concluded is that the court is going to do whatever it wants. It's going to pick and choose which parts of the Constitution it wants to follow and overturn precedents to pick and choose which rights that states should be allowed to regulate. Because it doesn't mention abortion in the Constitution. It doesn't mention the right to protect yourself with a gun in the Constitution. So they're basically picking and choosing. But that may not be the worst part. And I just read all those which just came down in the last week. All three of them. But that may not be the worst part. Not even close. Because the fear is that this could just be the beginning of the court rolling back rights that have been seen as protected by the Constitution and have been precedent for, in some cases, decades and decades. These include the right to same-sex marriage, same-sex relations, and the right to contraception. Oh, Xander, please. You're crazy. That would never happen. We would never outlaw same-sex marriage again. The right to contraception. We've moved past that. Well, a bunch of people thought we moved past outlawing abortion again. But here we are. That probably would have been a good argument a couple of days ago. But everything is out in the open thanks to Justice Clarence Thomas. Oh, our guy. Because... Even though the main ruling for the case of Dobbs v. Jackson was written by Justice Alito, there were two other concurring opinions that were written by Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Thomas. Roberts' opinion did agree that Mississippi's 15-week law should be allowed, but it criticized the overturning of Roe v. Wade, even though he voted to do that. On the other side, though, Thomas went the other way. 
In his concurring opinion, Thomas called for the court to go a step further and take a look at other cases that are now seen as precedent. Thomas argued, quote, In future cases, we should reconsider all of this court's substantive due process precedents, including Griswold, Lawrence, and Obergefell, because any substantive due process decision is demonstrably erroneous, we have a duty to correct the error in these precedents, unquote. So of those three cases that Thomas mentioned, Griswold v. Connecticut gave married couples the right to obtain contraceptives, birth control, in 1965. Lawrence v. Texas established the right to engage in private sexual acts, allowing same-sex relations, in 2003. And Obergefell v. Hodges in 2015 said that the Constitution allows the right to same-sex marriage. Santa warned you! So, Thomas basically said the quiet part out loud, because apparently, now... We need to get rid of same-sex marriage. We need to get rid of same-sex relations. And we need to get rid of birth control. Which, you know, some Republicans, major Republicans, like Thomas, may agree with. But they're not going to like that he said the quiet part out loud. Mainly because of the fact that, like Roe v. Wade, those rulings have proven popular. In 2015... When the case was decided, same-sex marriage was only supported by around 55% of Americans compared to 42% who did not support it. Today, 71% support gay marriage while only 28% don't, according to Gallup. Additionally, a 2019 Gallup survey found that 92% of Americans believe that birth control is morally acceptable. So, you know. It's also interesting, however, I will note that Thomas did not mention the case of Loving v. Virginia, which allowed interracial marriage because it was protected under the Equal Protection and Due Process Clauses of the 14th Amendment. Oh, well, if Thomas was consistent, wouldn't he have mentioned that case because it is protected by the same clauses that the ones he mentioned are? It doesn't make any sense! Just wait a second, though, because if you didn't know this, Thomas is married to a white woman. So, I just figured it out. They didn't say that because that case is what allowed Thomas to marry his wife, Jenny Thomas, who also, as it happens, tried to overturn the 2020 presidential election. So also, Gallup finds that polling in 1958 found that only 4% of Americans approved of interracial marriages, which was actually defined in the poll of the time as marriages between white and colored people. Today, interracial marriage is approved by 94% of Americans. Also, the 6% who don't, woof, racist people. It's pretty clear that the court is just picking and choosing, just like Thomas did, and that they want to take even more rights away unless they protect them personally. Oh, that's probably why polls show that trust of the Supreme Court is at an all-time low. A Gallup poll from this month found that only 25% have a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in the Supreme Court, which is the lowest that poll has ever seen, which began in the early 1970s. That includes only 39% of Republicans. The NPR-PBS Marist poll found that 58% said they have not very much or no confidence at all in the court, 
And in the CBS News poll, over 50% of respondents said they believe that the court will likely end or limit same-sex marriage and access to birth control and contraception. That NPR PBS Marist poll found that over 50% of respondents were concerned or very concerned about the court reconsidering contraception, same-sex relations, and same-sex marriage rulings. So clearly, the majority of the American people do not approve of the Supreme Court. And with approval ratings that low, you would think that something needs to be done because it's clear that Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, who all said that Roe was settled law during their confirmation hearings, are not working for the American people. And of course, all three of them were nominated by Donnie Boy. It's also pretty amazing that just as Clarence Thomas is still allowed to be on the court, considering his wife was literally a part of the group in the White House that wanted to overturn the 2020 presidential election to favor Trump. If you don't believe me, just watch the January 6th hearings, which we're actually going to talk about in a second. Now, of course, an easy solution would be to expand the court, which, oh my gosh, Xander, you radical, which, just hold on, has actually happened several times before. The Supreme Court has expanded or shrunk seven times in the history of the United States, with the latest move coming just after the Civil War when the court was downsized from 10 to 7 members and then upgraded to 9 members by President Ulysses S. Grant. These are facts! Now, President Franklin Roosevelt proposed expanding the court to 15 seats in 1937, but that did not pass Congress. So while majorities do not approve of the court, majorities also do not want to expand the court because that PBS NPR Marist poll found that only 33% of Americans support expanding the court, while 54% disapprove. So, if that's out of the question, and we couldn't do it anyway because filibuster, what are we going to do to restore women's rights and make sure that we don't have other rights taken from us as Americans. Voting is, of course, the obvious answer. And now I know, Xander, you sound like a broken record because everybody is telling you to vote. But, like, that is what you need to do. There is the argument that Democrats should have done something sooner, which I agree, they should have, but that is all in the past. We have to look at the future, which is going on right now, and the reality. The reality is that while Democrats do control the House, the Senate, and the White House, as you know from listening to this podcast, it is not that simple because an archaic Jim Crow era relic, the filibuster, still controls what can and cannot go forward in the Senate. 60 votes are still needed to pass any non-budgetary bills in the Senate unless there are 50 votes to eliminate the filibuster. However, as I said, there are two Democrats who have remained steadfast in their support for the filibuster. The thing is, if the Democrats can gain two more seats in the midterms, they can probably remove the filibuster and pass a law that would codify abortion rights and legalize them nationwide if they hold the House as well. Of course, if that happens, they can do many other things that the American people support as well, including passing gun control legislation like an assault weapons ban and universal background checks, voting rights reform, parts of the Build Back Better economic agenda, making D.C. a state, among many other popular legislation items. And I actually 
mentioned making DC a state because the leaders of DC are now worried because the Supreme Court sent the decision of abortion to the states. DC is not a state. So, now, they're worried that if Republicans can get Congress, if they can get the White House, that they will pass abortion bans for DC, which is overwhelmingly, like 90% of voters in DC voted for Joe Biden. Like, it's not even close. So, you know, DC should probably be making their own laws, which is why they should be a state, which I've talked about on this podcast. That's cool. You can be mad at the Democrats for not doing anything up to now. You can say that the solution being voting is overrated and everybody says to do it. But that is the reality that we are in. I mean, I cannot speak for what the Democrats are doing because I'm obviously hosting a podcast, not in Washington, D.C., not a member of Congress. But like, I gotta say, if you want abortion, women's rights, and other human rights to be protected nationwide in the United States of America... So it doesn't matter if you live in a red state or a blue state, then you need to vote and you need to vote for Democrats because you can't vote for the other party because we have seen where Republicans think about this. They have celebrated the ruling. Trump being elected in 2016 and getting to appoint three Supreme Court justices is what got us here. So I've said it many times before on this podcast. I'm saying it now and I'm going to keep saying it in the future. You gotta vote if you want things to change for the better in this country. Because we have finally made it. Not in a good way. The far right-wing Christian tyranny has accomplished their 50-year goal of overturning Roe v. Wade. Which is only, first off, let me just say this. Because I said it last time on episode 62 of the podcast. But I think I need to say it again. Big fact incoming! This is only going to stop safe abortions in states where abortion is and becomes illegal. And it is going to lead to a rise in the number of women whose lives are in danger. We know this because before Roe v. Wade, abortions were happening. It's going to force women who are raped or are the victim of incest to carry those fetuses until they give birth. Because if I'm living in Mississippi or... Well, actually, let's say Texas, because in Texas they have a total abortion ban now. If I, or actually, hold on, cover the kids' ears for a second, because this is going to get dirty. If my stepfather or cousin does sexual acts on me or anyone, apparently, if I become pregnant because of that, I or anyone is going to have to birth that child. Like, in Texas, that's what you're gonna have to do. Like, seriously? That's ridiculous. Abortion is not baby killing. Yes, it is, Xander! They're killing babies! No. What it is, is abortion is giving women the right to make the choice they want to with their body. And of course, I'm obviously not a woman, so I have no idea how that feels. But... There are no laws that are restricting what men can do with their bodies, so why are we restricting what women can do with their bodies? That doesn't make much sense. 
Anti-abortion advocates will say, though, that the abortion involves many individuals, mainly the mother and the fetus. But also, don't COVID vaccines affect other people too? Because I'm pretty sure you getting the COVID vaccine helps to protect you and others around you. Why am I bringing up the COVID vaccine? Because then those same people who are anti-abortion are most likely the ones that were arguing my body, my choice for COVID vaccines. But apparently that doesn't apply in this scenario. Apparently it's not your body and not your choice. But with COVID vaccines, it totally is your body and your choice, but not in this scenario. (sighs) Make it make sense. There are many reasons why a woman should get an abortion, but why does it matter to you? Because that should be a choice between a woman, her doctor, and potentially, if she wants, her family. And if she doesn't, that's fine because it's her, it's her body, it's her choice. The rest of the developed world allows women to obtain an abortion for a variety of reasons. Countries like Canada and France are looking at us like, what is wrong with you? Even The president of France, Emmanuel Macron, who we have talked about on this podcast because his election was recently, is now trying to put abortion rights in the French constitution. And also, Israel just loosened a bunch of restrictions on abortion. Israel! Like, I don't know if you know this, but our country is literally going backwards. And the only way that we can stop the backward slide, there's only one way we can do that. Hopefully, you all and the rest of the American people figure this out and show up in numbers, big numbers, this November. Because now that Roe v. Wade is overturned, now that abortion is apparently not constitutionally protected in this country, we're all wondering what we can do. And there's probably a bunch of things you can do. But the big thing that is actually going to make change is vote. Voting for people who support abortion rights and who will say that they will implement an abortion protection law in the Congress for the entire nation. I mean, that is like really the only thing we can do right now because it's going to get a lot harder for the Supreme Court to make these decisions about these rights when the Congress is passing laws that protect them. So, I mean, there you go. But that is my another podcast about abortion, because, of course, that is the main topic. And it's important, too. We're talking about taking away women's rights in the United States of America. Land of the free. Well, sorry, but we're going to tell you what to do. Small government, conservatives, limited government. No, we're going to restrict what you can do with your body. Make it make sense, police. So that's what I've got for abortion. But we're not done with the podcast because we have got another big topic to discuss involving the January 6th committee. Because I know abortion is taking over the headlines right now, but the January 6th committee is still really important right now in the United States and it is continuing its hearings. We are now over halfway through the public hearings being held by the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. So far, we have heard the testimony of many individuals who were in Trump's orbit before, during, and in the aftermath of the January 6th, 2021 insurrection at the Capitol building, 
We've gotten new information on what exactly was going on in the Trump White House regarding the 2020 presidential election and Team Trump's efforts to overturn the results because Trump had lost. Oh no. Oh yay. We have a couple of hearings to recap here on the podcast. And actually, when I was planning this podcast, I was looking at it. I was like, all right, I'll guess I'll do a little quick recap of the hearings that happened last week. But then on Monday, the committee made headlines after they announced a surprise hearing would be held on Tuesday during a congressional recess when members are not in Washington. So we kind of expected something big because of the surprise announcement and the vague details that came with it. And something big we got. Not just something, a couple of things. Pretty big. So we are going to dive deep into this hearing that just happened yesterday. The day I'm recording this podcast, actually. Tuesday. Because how about a couple of bombshells? Let's start with that, because as mentioned, Tuesday's hearing was unexpected. After last week's hearings, we did not expect the hearings to resume until July when Congress resumed from recess. But then on Monday, the committee announced that a previously unscheduled hearing would take place on Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern. So obviously, speculation ensued. The committee mentioned that there would be new evidence and testimony. But who was the mystery witness. So online, you know, all the names came out. Oh my gosh, it's Mark Meadows, the chief of staff. Oh my gosh, it's Mike Pence. No, it's not any of this. It was, as was reported on Monday night, Cassidy Hutchinson. Everybody's like, who is Cassidy Hutchinson? Who? Cassidy Hutchinson is a former top aide to Mark Meadows, who was Trump's last White House chief of staff. Most didn't know her name at the beginning of Tuesday, but you probably do now, and you probably should. Because her testimony revealed many new details about Trump and his behavior on January 6th that are going to prove crucial to any potential indictment of Trump and those around him. So, in this, I'm going to be playing several audio clips of Hutchinson's testimony, which she gave under oath on Tuesday, because I would suspect that if you were a normal-thinking individual... You would think some of the things I'm saying are like wacko, completely crazy, and you have no clue what you're talking about. But I assure you, all the things you're going to hear about were true because if they weren't true, then Cassidy Hutchinson just lied under oath, and that is a crime. No! First up, Hutchinson testified that Trump was informed on the morning of January 6th that his supporters were in D.C., were armed. She said that at the infamous rally that was set up on the ellipse, where Trump, of course, said, we're going to go to the Capitol. She said that Trump was upset that the space for his rally was not full of supporters and said that they should be allowed through with weapons because they weren't there to hurt him. Listen to this. But when we were in the offstage announced tent, I was part of a conversation I was, in the, I was in the vicinity of a conversation where I overheard the president say something to the effect of, you know, I, I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing mags away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. Let the people in. Take the effing mags away. Just to be clear, Ms. Hutchinson, is it your understanding that the president wanted 
to take the mags away and said that the armed individuals were not there to hurt him. That's a fair assessment. So Hutchinson then recounts coming back from the White House and talking with top White House aide Tony Ornato about what happened with Trump on the way back from the Olympics to the White House. Listen to this. Ms. Hutchinson, when you returned to the White House in the motorcade after the president's speech, where did you go? When I returned to the White House, I walked upstairs towards the chief of staff's office, and I noticed Mr. Renato lingering outside of the office. Once we had made eye contact, he quickly waved me to go into his office, which was just across the hall from mine. When I went in, he shut the door, and I noticed Bobby Angle, who is the head of Mr. Trump's security detail, sitting in a chair, just looking somewhat discombobulated and a little lost. Um, I looked at Tony, and he had said, did you effing hear what happened in the Beast? I said, no, Tony, I, I just got back. What happened? Tony proceeded to tell me that when the president got in the Beast, he was under the impression from Mr. Meadows that the off-the-record movement to the Capitol was still possible and likely to happen, but that Bobby had more information. So once the president had gotten into the vehicle with Bobby, he thought that they were going up to the Capitol, and when Bobby had relayed to him, we're not, we don't have the assets to do it, it's not secure, we're going back to the West Wing. The president had very strong, a very angry response to that. Um, Tony described him as being irate. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president, take me up to the Capitol now which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel and Mr. When Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles. And was Mr. Engel in the room as Mr. Renato told you this story? He was. Did Mr. Engel correct or disagree with any part of the story from Mr. Renato? Mr. Engel did not correct or disagree with any part of the story. Did Mr. Engel or Mr. Renato ever after that tell you that what Mr. Ornato had just said was untrue? Neither Mr. Ornato nor Mr. Engel told me ever that it was untrue. So like, bro, and that is insane. And new information that we have not heard about before that Donnie Boy is so crazy that he literally assaulted a Secret Service agent who was trying to protect him because he wanted to go to the Capitol. So, apparently, Trump did want to go to the Capitol, which is a direct contradiction from Mark Meadows' book from last year when he said that Trump was speaking metaphorically when he said he wanted to go to the Capitol, but apparently it was not metaphoric. It was literal, and it's also, we were dragging him because he said, we're going to go to the Capitol, and then he bailed and chickened out and went back to the White House. Well, apparently he didn't want to chicken out, which probably would have been worse like it's oh my gosh so also 
Hutchinson recounted, in the days leading up to January 6th, there was serious talk about going to the Capitol from inside the White House. Ms. Hutchinson, do you remember Mr. Giuliani meeting with Mr. Meadows on January 2nd, 2021? I do. He met with Mr. Meadows in the evening of January 2nd, 2021. And we understand that you walked Mr. Giuliani out of the White House that night, um, and he talked to you about January 6th. What do you remember him saying? As Mr. Giuliani and I were walking to his vehicles that evening, he looked at me and said something to the effect of, Cass, are you excited for the 6th? It's going to be a great day. I remember looking at him and saying, Rudy, could you explain what's, what's happening on the 6th? Uh, he, he had responded something to the effect of, we're going to the Capitol. It's going to be great. The president's going to be there. He's going to look powerful. He's, he's going to be with the members. He's going to be with the senators. Talk to the chief about it. Talk to the chief about it. He knows about it. And did you go back uh, then up to the West Wing and tell Mr. Meadows about your conversation with Mr. Giuliani? I did. After Mr. Giuliani had left the campus that evening, I went back up to our office and I found Mr. Meadows in his office on the couch. He was scrolling through his phone. I remember leaning against the doorway and saying, I had an interesting conversation with Rudy, Mark. Sounds like we're going to go to the Capitol. He didn't look up from his phone and said something to the effect of, there's a lot going on, Cass, but I don't know. Things might get real, real bad on January 6th. And Hutchinson also said she spoke with White House counsel Pat Cipollone on the morning of January 6th, warning that Trump could not go to the Capitol. I understand, Ms. Hutchinson, that you also spoke to Mr. Cipollone on the morning of the 6th as you were about to go to the rally on the ellipse. And Mr. Cipollone said something to you like, make sure the movement to the Capitol does not happen. Is that correct? That's correct. I saw Mr. Cipollone right before I walked out onto West Exec that morning. And Mr. Cipollone said something to the effect of, please make sure we don't go up to the Capitol, Cassidy. Keep in touch with me. We're going to get charged with every crime imaginable if we make that movement happen. And do you remember which crimes Mr. Cipollone was concerned with? In the days leading up to the 6th, we had conversations about potentially obstructing justice or defrauding the electoral count. Yeah, so then, during the insurrection while Trump was back at the White House, Hutchinson recalled conversations that she had had with Meadows and Cipollone. No more than a minute, minute and a half later, I see Pat Cipollone barreling down the hallway towards our office and rushed right in, looked at me, said, is Mark in his office? And I said, yes. He just looked at me and started shaking his head and went over, opened Mark's office door, stood there with the door propped open and said something to the, Mark is still sitting on his phone. I remember like glancing and he's still sitting on his phone. And I remember Pat saying to him something to the effect of, the rioters have gotten to the Capitol, Mark. We need to go down and see the president now. And Mark looked up at him and said, he doesn't want to do anything, Pat. And Pat said something to the effect of, and very clearly <laughs> had said this to Mark, something to the effect of, Mark, something needs to be done or people are going to die and the blood's going to be on your effing hands. This is getting out of control. I'm going down there. And at that point, Mark stood up from his couch, both of his phones in his hand. He had his glasses on still. 
he walked out with Pat. He put both of his phones on my desk and said, let me know if Jim calls. And they walked out and went down to the dining room. It wasn't until Mark hung up the phone, handed it back to me. I went back to my desk. A couple minutes later, him and Pat came back, possibly Eric Hirschman too. I'm pretty sure Eric Hirschman was there. But I'm, I'm confident it was Pat that was there. Um, I remember Pat saying something to the effect of, Mark, we need to do something more. They're literally calling for the vice president to be effing hung. And Mark had responded something to the effect of, you heard him, Pat. He thinks Mike deserves it. He doesn't think they're doing anything wrong. So then finally, Hutchinson recalled a moment back on December 1st of 2020 when Trump learned that then-Attorney General William Barr told the Associated Press that there was no evidence of widespread election fraud. The physical altercation that Ms. Hutchinson described in the presidential vehicle was not the first time that the president had become very angry about issues relating to the election. On December 1, 2020, Attorney General Barr said in an interview that the Department of Justice had now not found evidence of widespread election fraud sufficient to change the outcome of the election. Ms. Hutchinson, how did the president react to hearing that news? Around the time that I understand the AP article went live, I remember hearing noise coming from down the hallway, so I poked my head out of the office, and I saw the valet walking towards our office. He had said, get the chief down to the dining room, the president wants him. So Mark went down to the dining room, came back to the office a few minutes later. After Mark had returned, I left the office and went down to the dining room and I noticed that the door was propped open and the valet was inside the dining room changing the tablecloth off of the dining room table. He motioned for me to come in and then pointed towards the front of the room near the fireplace mantle and the TV where I first noticed there was ketchup dripping down the wall and there's a shattered porcelain plate on the floor. The valet had articulated that the president was extremely angry at the Attorney General's AP interview and had thrown his lunch against the wall, um, which was causing them to have to clean up. So I, I grabbed a towel and started wiping the ketchup off of the wall to help the valet out. Um, and he said something to the effect of, he's really ticked off about this. I, I would stay clear of him for right now. He, he's really, really ticked off about this right now. And Ms. Hutchinson, was this the only instance that you are aware of where the president threw dishes? It's not. And are there other instances in the dining room that you recall where he expressed his anger? There were, there were several times throughout my tenure with the chief of staff that I was aware of him either throwing dishes or flipping the tablecloth um, to let all the contents of the table go onto the floor and likely break or go everywhere. <laughs> so I guess, I mean, if we had to guess whether or not Trump threw his food like a toddler at times, I mean, you kind of have to say yes, right? Also, ketchup, like what does that mean eating chicken nuggets? So then at the end of the hearing, 
the committee dropped something that could prove to be pretty substantial because here is what committee vice chair Liz Cheney said when talking about the possibility of witness tampering. While our committee has seen many witnesses, including many Republicans, testify fully and forthrightly, this has not been true of every witness. And we have received evidence of one particular practice that raises significant concern. Our committee commonly asks witnesses connected to Mr. Trump's administration or campaign whether they've been contacted by any of their former colleagues or anyone else who attempted to influence or impact their testimony. Without identifying any of the individuals involved, let me show you a couple of samples of answers we received to this question. First, here's how one witness described phone calls from people interested in that witness's testimony. Quote, what they said to me is as long as I continue to be a team player, they know I'm on the right team. I'm doing the right thing. I'm protecting who I need to protect. You know I'll continue to stay in good graces in Trump world. And they have reminded me a couple of times that Trump does read transcripts. And just keep that in mind as I proceed through my interviews with the committee. Here's another sample in a different context. This is a call received by one of our witnesses. Quote, a person let me know you have your deposition tomorrow. He wants me to let you know he's thinking about you. He knows you're loyal and you're gonna do the right thing when you go in for your deposition. I think most Americans know that attempting to influence witnesses to testify untruthfully presents very serious concerns. We will be discussing these issues as a committee, carefully considering our next steps. So, you know, all that stuff just came out on Tuesday, you know, no big deal. So, what did we all learn? Well, how about a whole lot of stuff? Like, the fact that Trump knew that the rioters weren't there to hurt him, that Trump wanted to go back to the Capitol and attack his Secret Service staff because they were taking him back to the Capitol, that Trump knew that the rioters were armed and still told them to go to the Capitol, and the fact that Trump has ketchup with his lunch. Like, what is that man eating? Chicken nuggets and fries for lunch. Like, I'm not even joking. But seriously, though, the bombshells that came out on Tuesday by Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony are going to help the committee a great deal and their efforts to present a criminal case against Trump and those that enabled him, including Mark Meadows, Hutchinson's former boss. And also, the possibility of witness tampering could add another possible charge. It's probably something we're going to hear about, though, in future hearings. But ultimately, the case against former President Trump and those that worked with him to overturn the 2020 presidential election just got. Much worse for those potential defendants. These new allegations are the most devastating yet for the former president to come out of these committee hearings. They are coming from the former top aide to the White House chief of staff. Hutchinson literally had an office that was just a five to ten second walk from the Oval Office. And to prove that, the committee literally provided an outline of the West Wing of the White House to prove that Hutchinson's office and the chief of staff's office is not very far away 
from the Oval Office. Of course, that doesn't mean, though, that there are still those on Team Trump that are attacking Hutchinson and the committee, including from Donnie Boy himself, because on his Truth Social account, which I've actually found doesn't include a lot of the truth, surprisingly. Seriously? Trump sent out messages that stated, quote, I hardly know who this person, Cassidy Hutchinson, is, other than I have heard very negative things about her, a total phony and leaker. And when she requested to go with certain others of the team to Florida after my having served a full term in office, I personally turned her request down. Why did she want to go with us if she felt we were so terrible? I understand that she was very upset and angry that I didn't want her to go or be a member of the team. She is bad news, unquote. So, also, that wasn't the only message that Trump sent out during Tuesday's hearings. Like, he was rage-truthing, even though they weren't really truths, I guess, because he's not on Twitter anymore. He had to say it. So, that means that he was definitely watching, and he is definitely freaked out and nervous. There are others that have tried to defend Trump, including Congressman Ronnie Jackson, a Republican from Texas, also Trump's former White House doctor, who sent a tweet right after the hearing that said, quote, The witch hunt committee is a joke! The liberal media will do anything to push this Never Trump snooze fest, but nobody in real America cares. Where are the hearings on inflation, the open border, and baby formula? This whole thing is meant to distract from buying failures, unquote. Original. Well, I didn't know that. But that doesn't mean that everyone on the right is defending Trump, because here is what Fox News anchor Brett Baer said in response to Hutchinson's testimony live on Fox News. I've covered politics for a long time. I don't think there's been testimony like this that is kind of jaw-dropping in a way on the inside workings of a White House in crisis after, you know, at this moment in January 6th that we've seen in since Watergate. Really. Yeah, I mean, this testimony was very compelling from beginning to end. She obviously had access to all of the players. We are now hearing from the former president on various posts where he questions her uh, accuracy. He goes after her directly, says he doesn't know who she is, and said he didn't lunge at the Secret Service agent in the Beast. Uh, that didn't happen. He says he didn't throw his lunch against the wall. That didn't happen, and that she's lying. Cassie Hutchinson is under oath on Capitol Hill. Um, the president is on Truth Social, uh, making his statements. What was so compelling, I think, is, is how it was laid out. We always point out that there's not a pushback, and it would have been great to hear Jim Jordan or some congressman say some other angle to this, but the testimony in and of itself is really, really powerful. So he may have to get a stern talking to after he said those things on Fox News, but Fox actually aired the committee hearing on Tuesday, so... How about that? Because ultimately, this is devastating to Trump and the Republicans who played along with him, and that reality just became even more clear. As David Graham writes in The Atlantic, as he wrote on Tuesday, quote, Donald Trump knew the protesters marching on the Capitol on January 6th were armed. He knew they could do harm to someone. He wanted to go to the Capitol with them as they marched that afternoon, and he did nothing to stop them as he attacked, unquote. He writes that, quote, Trump's supporters' defense of the president's behavior that day up until now has been that he simply wanted a peaceful demonstration and didn't anticipate the violence that broke out 
when his supporters stormed the Capitol. Some allies have denied that demonstrators were even armed. That defense has never been especially plausible, but Hutchinson's testimony demolishes it, unquote. Oh yeah, we also saw footage from former Trump National Security Advisor Michael Flynn in his interview with the committee. General Flynn, do you believe the violence on January 6th was justified? Is that, can I get a clarification? Is that a moral question or are you asking a legal question? I'm asking both. I said, I, I said the fifth. Do you believe the violence on January 6th was justified morally? Take the fifth. You believe the violence on January 6th was justified legally? Fifth. General Flynn, do you believe in the peaceful transition of power in the United States of America? The fifth. So basically, when you take the fifth, you usually do that because you're invoking your right to refuse to answer the question or provide information that might incriminate you. So, yeah. Whoops. And whether it's actually going to amount to any criminal charges, all that time will tell. Because Attorney General Merrick Garland has said that he and his team have been paying close attention to the hearings when the committee wraps up their hearings in July. The action from the Justice Department should begin. But for now, we await the rest of the information that the committee is going to reveal. Because certainly with the information that came out on Tuesday, a criminal indictment of Trump is more likely than it was before the hearing. And some of that new information actually came out last week in the previous hearing. Because last Tuesday, the committee heard testimony from Arizona House Speaker Rusty Bowers, who's a Republican, who was pressured by Trump to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election in Arizona, a state that Trump lost, and by one. How about that? The committee also discussed potential fake electors that the Trump team was planning to implement in states that Trump had lost, which was confirmed in recorded testimony from Republican National Committee Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel. And also... Text messages revealed that a staffer from Wisconsin Republican Senator Ron Johnson's office texted to a Vice President Pence aide that Johnson wanted to hand Pence an alternative slate of electors for Michigan and Wisconsin, states that Trump lost, and Biden won. How about that? Additional testimony came from Georgia's Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and his deputy Gabriel Sterling, who also say that they were pressured by Trump to find votes and overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election in Georgia. Guess what? Georgia is a state that Trump lost and Biden won. But that's something that we've already known from that phone call. I need 11,000 whatever votes is what he said. So then the fifth committee hearing was held on Thursday of last week, where the committee showed how Trump tried to put in place an attorney general in the Justice Department who would have helped him overturn the election and stay in power. Acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen, Acting Deputy Attorney General Richard Donahue, and Assistant Attorney General for the Office of Legal Counsel Stephen Engel all testified that Trump tried to implement Jeffrey Clark as the Acting Attorney General after Bill Barr had resigned. That was terrible. Now, Clark 
was the Assistant Attorney General for the Environment and Natural Resources Division and had never tried a criminal case or conducted a criminal investigation. He was introduced to Trump on December 22, 2020, when Republican Congressman Scott Perry introduced Clark to Trump at the White House. The witnesses said that when they went to the White House and Trump told them about his plan to put Clark as the Attorney General, that nearly every assistant attorney general would have resigned, which would have caused massive chaos at the Justice Department. And luckily, that did not happen. That's also, that hearing is also where we first saw Cassidy Hutchinson, because we saw her recorded testimony saying that multiple members of Congress sought pardons. Take a listen. And are you aware of any members of Congress seeking pardons? I guess Mr. Gates and Mr. Brooks, I know, have both advocated for there to be a blanket pardon for members involved in that meeting and a handful of other members that weren't at the December 21st meeting um, as the preemptive pardons. Uh, Mr. Gates was personally pushing for a pardon. Mr. Biggs did. Mr. Jordan talked about congressional pardons, but he never asked me for one. Mr. Gomer asked for one as well. Any Mr. Any Perry asked for a pardon too. I'm sorry, I need to cut Mr. Off. Perry, did he talk, talk to you directly? Yes, he did. Did uh, Marjorie Chamberlain contact you? No, she didn't contact me about it. I heard that she had asked White House Counsel's Office for a pardon from Mr. Philbin. So, I mean, uh uh-oh, like, you're not asking for a pardon when you didn't do anything wrong. So, we are learning lots of new information about what was going on inside the White House leading up to and on January 6, 2021. And the committee is expected to resume with the final hearings coming next month with some new information that is still needing to be released. But... If you're going to take anything away from these hearings and the committee's work, especially from Tuesday's hearing, it's that it has not been good for Donnie Boy Trump. That's all I'm going to say there. That's what I'm going to say for January 6th committee, abortion, and that is episode 68 of the Xander's Facts podcast. Thank you all for listening. And remember, if you liked all the facts on this crazy long podcast but we had a lot of facts so it's okay are you done but remember if you like all the facts remember click the follow button download the podcast rate the podcast review the podcast go on other socials go on the link tree because it's got all the xander's facts links that you need go check out xander's facts on youtube because we're posting all our episodes to youtube you should check that out with a nice background and you can sign up for xander's weekend facts which i mentioned earlier from Substack. You can click the special link in this episode's description. It is free to get it in your email inbox every Sunday morning. And most importantly, remember, tell all your friends, spread the facts, Xander's Facts Podcast. Next week, we got a new episode of the podcast, episode 69. I have no clue what we're going to talk about, but it's going to be something good. Episode 69 is next week. So that is it. That is a wrap. On episode 68 of the Xander's Facts Podcast, thank you all for listening, and we'll see y'all with episode 69 next week.
Cool facts, bro.